Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and his colleague, Darren Lewis. We hear a lot about player power, but is that myth or reality? We might be about to find out. Bear with me here. Harry Kane is praised by Nuno for a 20-minute substitute appearance at Wolves. He, in turn, dashes onto social media to hail a brilliant battling win. Spurs fans seem ready to forgive, if not forget. There's an ominous silence from his supposed suitors at Manchester City. Positions seem to be shifting subtly. Now, everyone looks after number one in football. So John, does all this mean Harry Kane will still be a Tottenham player when the window closes? Yes, I think it probably does. Can I say that 100% certainty? No, I can't. But I do think... Listen, I've always believed that Harry Kane would actually end up at, at staying at Spurs at the end of the window, simply because I just think there's so much ground between the two. And it has been a bit of an ugly saga, really. It's it's become a little bit distasteful and it's played out for so long and pretty clear, wasn't it, from the springtime that, that Kane was looking for a new challenge, had become slightly disaffected and... And towards the end of last season, I think the Spurs fans were, were quite gracious, really. Sort of said, go on, then on you go. Thanks, thanks for everything. Thanks for the memories. Good luck in your, in your next chapter. And actually, the last month, six weeks or so, has played out rather badly for Kane, I think, in, in, in many ways. And I thought that it was great from the Spurs fans' point of view that the vast majority of noise that you heard when he came on was Spurs fans welcoming back. Of course, there was a smattering of booze, but I, th- I think that was probably Wolves fans, wasn't it? And yeah, I think it, so, yeah. <laughs> but it does show that that yeah. I I just think generally, I think it's been amazing to hear in the last sort of kind of couple of months of ex players and pros and who have been in this situation before just almost assume that it was inevitable that Kane would go, and Kane was definitely leaving. Kane wants to go; he'll be going to Man City. And I just think that, yes, I think the vast majority in the past have, have got what they wanted, but they are up against a very, very difficult operator in, in Daniel Levy. And I mean that in, in respect of the fact that he doesn't let players go cheaply, he doesn't let players go easily, he'll let them go on his terms. If Man City had come in from day one with a really serious bid and a close to an agreement and had a conversation that might break things down, then I would say, yes, it will happen. But City don't be, appear to be bridging that huge gap any time, particularly soon. I think Spurs have held firm and done so quite quite well and sort of eased him back. I think Nuno, frankly, it feels to me, has only really picked him now when he thinks, well, a week to go, I'm pretty sure that he's going to be staying. So it feels as if I can blend him back in now. It would have been maybe risky to do it last weekend, no, people said that would have been too soon. Are you sure this is Harry Kane we're talking about? Harry Kane, the player that, frankly, declares when he wants to play in the past. And so maybe, just maybe, the tables have turned even on that a little bit. So I think that that, that Nuno has, has actually played it out quite well, proving himself to be quite adept at handling it. What a challenge, by the way, for Nuno to come in and do that. And I think he's handled it really well. Mm. 
I suppose what in you know in your own paper, Robbie Savage was was talking about well what the contracts actually mean, and I suppose put that into the broadest perspective, Darren. As I said, everyone in football looks after number one. Kane's probably not handled it, or Kane's team haven't handled things as well as they should have done. Daniel Levy, you can't blame him for trying to get the most out of the situation. City seem content to leave Harry Kane in limbo. This is football in a microcosm, isn't it? It absolutely is. Just in case you can hear some noise next door, it's kind of a, a, a symbol, the most appropriate noise that you can imagine because the next door neighbours are doing some construction. So as we talk about City and Spurs trying to complete the work that they are doing on their respective <laughs> teams, I've got the appropriate soundtrack for you. Dazza, uh, I, th- I thought it was Harry Kane trying to burrow his way out of Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right about the the microcosm. I think you're right about the difficulty that Kane finds himself in. I totally agree with everything that you've been saying, Crossy. The weekend's been quite fascinating in so much as in our industry, we employ big name columnists to give their insight into this situation. And all of the columnists have been very, very illuminating on this Troy Deeney from Watford in the sun saying he thinks the move will go through and that the other players will see how best it benefits them rather than worry about what happens to Harry Kane. We've been all of the opinion, if you like, that the other players are concerned that what losing Harry Kane will do for Tottenham's chances of competing in the Premier League. But the players say Troy Deeney, says Troy Deeney, they're thinking, well, you know, Son can play centrally. Ali will get into the team. Ali scored his first goal in 17 months against Wolves and looks a different player in these early stages of the season. The side looks disciplined, organised and focused. So clearly they're moving on without him. And so it's quite interesting from Deeney's point of view, Harry Redknapp in the Sun on Sunday saying yesterday he thinks the move will still go through. Obviously, knowing what he knows from working for Daniel Levy, I'm very much like you, Crossy. I don't think it will go through. Jonathan Northcroft last weekend in a Sunday time saying he doesn't think it will go through and that even if City were to come up with a sizable sum of money that is potentially acceptable, Spurs still might not do the deal because they've not been left with enough time to do it. Jamie Carragher, as you were saying, Michael, at the weekend, saying, well, City have indeed left Kane in limbo because... Had they made a suitable offer sooner, it would have given time to Spurs to go and get replacements. But Spurs can't be running around like they normally do. And what's happened uh, below all of this, and I've even mentioned Micah Richards talking about how Kane is actually, by our industry, being given an easy ride compared to other players like Pogba, who have been vilified and they've not said anything like the avalanche of words that Kane has said in the media about wanting to leave. And Robbie's column, where Robbie says, look, players behave badly. And I I thought it was a brilliant column because he was very, very honest in an industry where there isn't a lot of honesty. And he said, I was badly behaved when I wanted to force my move from Birmingham to Blackburn. But then he says on the flip side, when Derby went down, they put me in the reserves with the kids because I was on big money and they wanted me at the club. So don't think this thing only happens one way. It's been a really illuminating weekend in terms of insight from the players and the people around this situation and within football in terms of how they see it. And it's even carried on today with Peter Crouch saying, well, hang on, people vilify Levy, but I'd like him to run my club because he does it in the right way and he does what's best for Tottenham, I think the whole thing is, it was, we're all used to sagas, we're all long enough in the tooth and grey enough in the hair, to, and in my case, no hair, to, <laughs> to know that the, these sagas come around and, and they eventually resolve themselves. And Crossy, I know when you go and do England, I may well join you, all of the conversation will be around Harry Kane because he's the captain of England. He's the only member of the starting eleven that wasn't available to begin the season. So whatever he says, and clearly he's come out and put his stated his cases to clarify the holiday in inverted commas and, and all of the nonsense around that, people will examine his conduct 
for better or for worse. And they'll talk about, you know, where it leaves him. And he is, in theory, the guy who sets a standard. Me, personally, I don't think he owes Spurs anything. He's scored goals for fun and they've missed the chances when they had them to build the team around them. But this looks like a solid, more compact Spurs. And what's gone unnoticed is Spurs, you could set your watch by Spurs losing their first couple of games of the season where they're either trying to hold out for a bargain or trying to keep a good player from leaving. And they've won their first two games really, really well. So football in a microcosm, the madness of what I've just said in the last, what, two and a half minutes, you betcha. <laughs> yeah. And you are you, you are still a silver fox in my eyes, Darren. You know, I'm looking at the grey stubble, mate. It's great. I suppose, Crossy, we, we look at, you know, the football is a business. And I suppose even if you look at Wolves, the Tottenham's opponents on Sunday, you know, their business model has probably left them with a, a squad without enough depth. They sold a player last last week, Rafamir, to Seville for thirteen million pounds. He'd been there for three years. I think most of us had even forgotten that he was there. So, in in a broad sense, you know, and and you know, both of you were at Arsenal Chelsea on Sunday. Do transfers really sway public opinion and buy time for unpopular boards or managers? Because you know, Arsenal have spent one hundred and thirty million pounds without dispelling any sense of crisis, which must have been really apparent at the Emirates yesterday. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure they do. I mean, all, all the pundits that Darren mentioned, I just must mention that sort of Peter Crouch, I thought, was, was, was amazing, simply because for him to be praising Daniel Levy, when Peter Crouch left Spurs, and he's detailed this in his story at the time, and he's, he's later backed it up in his book, when Peter Crouch left Spurs, he was basically told the day before, we well, won't be in our Premier League squad. It was an England international at the time. He said, if you don't leave, you won't be in our 25-man Premier League squad. You either take this or that's the consequence. If, you, if you're looking for an illumination of how, how tough Levy is, anyway. But there you go, which I just thought was a, sort of a fascinating insight on it. But mm. but no, I, don't, I do think that me and Darren were talking about this over the press desk yesterday, basically. And Arsenal, in fairness to him, I do feel as if, the owners who have instigated a sort of a page in the programme trying to communicate with the fans of all the Super League owners, they're, they're the ones that quit off the blocks and Josh Conkey spoke to fans. What have they done this summer? They've tried to address the squad. It's not good enough and they've spent nearly £140 million on new players. I actually think that... I felt sorry for Aaron Ramsdale on Friday because I think if you, if you sign, if you're Aaron Ramsdale, that's one of the best days in your life and your career and you're met with a sea of doubts and saying, well, he's not worth it. Oh, they made a mistake on Martinez. What are you going to do for, you know, about Martinez? They've made a mistake on Martinez. At some point, you've got to move on and try and address the issue. And I actually think that Ramsdale is OK. Ben White, yes, arguably they've overspent. But basically, that's the price Brighton wanted. And so, so they've paid it. So they've gone the extra yard. Why on earth would a, would a fan worry about that? Surely they'd say, well, good on the owners. But the negativity, Mike, is, is the thing that gets me is that the fans have lost faith, really, in it. And I think at the heart of that matter is they are wondering whether Arteta is the man to kind of implement and put those players into the team. And you can't fool people. To, to watch him go on Sky and to see him talk at post-match about the fans being on side, it, to me it doesn't sit right because I think it weakens his position. It doesn't strong... You can't kid people that the fans... Are on side. They booed them off at half time and full time, and they gave them a, a rotten reception. Frankly, because they, they, I think it's more because they don't believe in the manager at the moment. They've got to start to. I don't think they're going to change the manager quickly. They're going to give him every chance to succeed. If you need proof of that, I think they'll still try and do a bit more business and look at the business they've done already. We're not going to press the panic button after two, even four games. I just think they've got to stick with it. They're in the middle of a nightmare, but. I have to say, Chelsea has spent £97.5 million on Lukaku, who frankly has improved so much since he left. He now looks like the closest thing to, to Didier Drogba that I've seen since Drogba at his peak at Chelsea, when he made himself one of the, the all-time Premier League greats. He used to destroy Arsenal defences for fun, and here's Lukaku back doing it. And, and frankly, it wasn't a great surprise, was it? Let's be honest. I, I just thought, 
when Arsenal went 2-0 down before half-time, I thought it could get even worse. And frankly, Arsenal probably got away with it, to be honest with you. They were, they were that poor. Yeah, I suppose what struck me about the whole thing, you know, I wasn't there, unlike you, I was just watching but on TV, but there is a, it's almost tiresomely familiar, the atmosphere at the Emirates, isn't it? You know, you get the sense that the same people who turned up with Wenger out banners or Emery out banners are going to turn up with Arteta out banners. When you've got that cycle of anger, mistrust, whatever you want to call it, you know, failure is a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it, Darren? It absolutely is. And I think the atmosphere is so febrile at Arsenal. Jonathan Liu did a terrific piece today where he said that there were points where the negativity transmitted itself to the players. And what happened at stages during yesterday's match was that as soon as the fans started shouting, the players just started running towards the ball. They didn't actually know what they were going to do when they got there, but they just felt that they had to respond in some way, shape or form. And he was talking about that, but sort of feeding into the reasons why on two occasions, Rhys James was left in acres of space on the right-hand side because nobody thought to cover the space that Tierney had left behind him every time he ventured forward. And even Tierney himself didn't really cover himself in glory. And and yes, in a word, there is a, in a word, in a sentence, there is a febrile atmosphere at Arsenal that no amount of spending is going to ease and you're right with your question, your, your previous question about the fact that sometimes if the fans don't like the manager, the ownership, then when you bring in, when you spend money, unless you're spending it so wisely that it has a transformative effect, it doesn't really do anything to heal the rift. You look at West Ham, they had a terrific season last season. Now, David Moyes, with the performances during the first half of the campaign, did buy himself some time when they sold Sebastian Haller in the January transfer window. He was not very good, and they sold him at a loss. But because of the business he'd done in the preceding couple of windows, Suchek, Sufal, Jared Bowen was being a terrific buy, Craig Dawson had done well coming in on loan after the £50 million that Burnley wanted, West Ham refused to pay. And now Burnley are probably, for James Tarkovsky, and now Burnley are probably going to lose him for a fraction of that because he's running his contract down. But the West Ham fans still have this antipathy towards the owners. It's still there. And I think it's very similar with the Arsenal fans and the owner the silent stand. I think a lot of Arsenal fans look at Edu Gaspar. I think Paul Merson summed up what many people feel about many of the transfers not being that imaginative. And, and also there's this reconstruction of the side when there is a feeling that perhaps the manager could be getting more out of the senior strikers that he has, and maybe getting more supply to him, maybe playing Aubameyang more centrally. I think that for all the money that they've spent they are. They still have a soft centre. They still can't defend balls into the box. They still lack the spine, the character of previous Arsenal teams. And you know, we sound like guys harking back to yesteryear when teams clearly have to evolve. But the problem for Arsenal is it appears they're building on sand because when you bring in players, there has to be the quality, the established players to give those players the platform to build on. You have that at Liverpool, you have that at City, you have that at Chelsea. You don't have that at Arsenal because at Arsenal, it's the younger players who were holding down the fort last season. Saka, Martinelli, Smith-Rowe, they were the green shoots of recovery in a wretched season. And so suddenly they are going to be the ones having to lead it when new players come in all over again. So I, I fear it's going to end in tears for Arteta. Mm. John, you, you mentioned Lukaku there, and we, when we look at a signing as a transformative signing, after one game, that pretty much appears to be the case. I think it was Lukaku had more shots than the entire Arsenal team combined. He created chances. You know, he, he basically tossed Pablo Mari aside like a bit of a rag doll. A perfect debut in many ways, wasn't it? Is he going to be that missing link and Chelsea enabling Chelsea to win the title. Yeah, look, I think that 
was so torn about who who I think thought would win the league, frankly, whether it was Man City or Chelsea. And I do think those are the two teams. And I think Lukaku has improved Chelsea so much. I mean, we should say about sort of kind of fans and, and being sort of maybe not ungrateful, but I did think it did make me laugh last week when, blimey, Chelsea have improved so much under Thomas Tuchel, just won the European Cup again. And just on this serial cycle of winning trophies under the Roman Bramwich era, so which I do really fully admire. And you've got an open day at the club, and you've still got that fan on the microphone oh, yeah. hijacking it, saying, Team over and get out of my club. <laughs> what, what more does the guy have to do? You know, he was, you know, I know people expected more, but he did play a major role in their success of last season. It was astonishing. And then then they've got this guy that can come off, off the bench, frankly, makes such an impact. And he'll play games this season, I think, either side of Lukaku. And that's the point, isn't it? I think that Lukaku is is just the finishing touch, the final piece in the jigsaw, because I think he's the focal point. And then I think Havertz, who came good in the last third of last season, fabulous. I think, honestly, the way he glides across the pitch is just beautiful to watch, absolutely beautiful. And I do think Werner's got something there that, I think he's best as a wide forward, cutting in. And to complement the lot, I think you've got just the best kind of centre-forward of his type. Please don't get me wrong, I think sort of Lewandowski is, is, is still the best number nine in Europe. But I just think as a really fearless kind of centre-forward, a powerful centre-forward, a, a really intelligent centre-forward who is so much more than just a physical presence. And you saw that yesterday in the way that I love the way that he drops deep and he links the play. He then turns and is either running at the Arsenal defence with the ball or trying to get on the end of something. His his all-round play has improved immeasurably. And I just think it's it's fascinating to see his development because he, he was at Chelsea the first time around Clearly, you know, I remember speaking to him. It was just, just basically post-match after he'd scored, I think, for West Brom and saying to him about sort of trying to learn and study and improve. And he said at that point, it's just like, I literally watch every single minute of every game in, in the league. I'll go home and do it over the Sunday and Monday. I want to watch absolutely everything, take in everything that I can improve. Such an intelligent, eloquent guy. Then I thought he probably didn't obviously get the chance at Chelsea first time around. Goes to Everton, improves, I think, as a, as a player under Martinez. Probably should have gone to Chelsea when Conte wanted him first time around. Goes to Man United, didn't work out. Clearly, he's spoken about this, hasn't he? How it went wrong and his diet and he looked too big and too too strong almost, if you, if you like. And then basically goes to Inter where he's properly coached again by Conte and comes back here and he's going to get coached, I think, under Tuchel again. And I think make another improvement. This this guy can seriously e- eclipse and take over and succeed. I think Lewandowski is the best number nine in the world. I really do. He's just fantastic. He's a phenomenon and he's exactly what Chelsea need. He will scare defences half to death, but he's so much more than just a physical presence. He's such a good all-round striker, brilliant player, great mm. signing. I'm, you know, I'm looking at Chelsea as in, in the round, if you like, Darren. Jorginho, you know, he's maintained the momentum of, a, of an excellent Euros. In fact, he's up this week together with Kante and Kevin De Bruyne on the shortlist for the UEFA Player of the Year. Can you just talk, one, about his importance to Chelsea, and two, and I'll ask you the same question, John, immediately afterwards, out of that shortlist, who is your Player of the Year? The, well, the first question, Jorginho, economic and metronomic with his passing. Uh, he's got such a wonderful range. Sometimes he's derided, sometimes he's almost dismissed, but he, he's a fine player, a, a fine, fine player. And you can see his importance. There were times under Frank Lampard that he couldn't get into the side and lots of people couldn't really understand why. And there was a point at which he almost could have left. I wonder why. I, I wonder whether that may have played a part in Lampard's departure because I know the club rate him extremely highly. And I think he may want to be one of a number of players over whom the club and Lampard disagreed. I know Rudiger, for example, 
was told that he had no future under Lampard. And as we can see, he's arguably their best central defender. And I think as far as Jorginho's concerned, again, no Lampard, Tuchel comes in, makes him an important player in the side. Ironically, I still think of the three players, I, I really like the other two. De Bruyne, we use that word transformative. He transforms any team he plays in, whether it's Belgium on one leg uh, <laughs> when he comes on back from injury or whether it's the Manchester City side when they're playing against a low block and he comes on and he, he, he finds his spaces. He could find space in the telephone box to read the newspaper, you know, in a crowded telephone box, I think. But then again, you've got Kenty, who is just so industrious. He is just everywhere where he came on yesterday suddenly he was going past Arsenal players and flailing legs with the minimum of fuss so it, it's a difficult one for me but I would possibly just give it to De Bruyne to edge it solely because he's such a beautiful footballer to watch he was edged out by Ruben Diaz for the Football Writers Player of the Year award but De Bruyne is a wonderful footballer my final line is that Actually, for all the garlands we're heaping onto Chelsea at the moment and City, I like Liverpool a lot. I think Liverpool is generally the best defence that wins a title. There's going to be an early season test of theirs next weekend when Chelsea come to town and field Saturday night. That's going to be a fantastic match. And I think people aren't really factoring in the strength and depth that Liverpool have. No Robertson at left-back. Simicas is playing there at the moment. Pride had the assist for the first goal at the weekend. Van Dijk is back to organising and leading that defence. Trent Alexander-Arnold has benefited from missing out on the Euros. We haven't really seen Canati that much yet. Gomez is fit again. Matip is fit again. When you talk about depth, that's a place that Liverpool didn't have it last season. Now they've got it this season. And now they're winning games with clean sheets and kind of getting that confidence back. I really also like Harvey Elliott in the midfield. Jordan Henderson popped balls about at the weekend, looking like he's back to his best. And if they were to do any more business in the window, it would only strengthen them as a football team. I think Liverpool. Interesting one. Just before we get on to Lul, expand on the Liverpool discussion, John. Give me your player of the year, please, out of those three. I I love Kante, I must admit. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. Listen, there was so much clamour after the Champions League final, wasn't there, for, for Kante. And as, uh, as another colleague, sort of Andy Dunn, pointed out, well, blimey, he's only been playing since March. <laughs> if you know what I mean, he, he was brilliant and, and fabulous in that in that Champions League final and everyone's going, oh, Kante's amazing. Well, we kind of knew that already. And so I, as much as I love Kante, and I do see the, the, the arguments for him, then then great. And listen, in a similar vein, the here is now. And basically, I love De Bruyne. And I did vote for, for Ruben Diaz last last year in the Football Writers, I must say, just because I thought City were there here and now. But I just think if you base it on success and achievement, I'd actually go for the other one, basically, Jorginho, because he's ended up winning the Champions League and also the Euros with Italy. So beat that as a season. Well, I just don't think you can. So that's why I would, would go for Jorginho. It's not always the most... Glamorous and sort of the other probably players have better attributes and stronger personalities as players. But I just think Jorginho, for what he achieved, I'd go for him. Well, it's obviously going to be a tight one when it's announced in, in Istanbul late this week because I think we've all gone for different ones out of three. So that's interesting. John, to go back to you about Liverpool, you know, I think Anfield exemplified at the weekend the, the home advantage factor. You know, to pick up on one of Darren's points about about the defence, Joel Matip, would he be your first choice central defender alongside Van Dijk when fit? Probably at the moment, yes, because I think it's the partnership that he brings. So while I think that Joe Gomez as an individual probably brings to the party more, more pace, more strength and reading of, of the game a little bit, I just think Joel Matip is such a clever player. He's just always there with the interception and where it counts. But that partnership 
with Van Dyke at times just looks impenetrable basically they look fantastic as a pair and I just think that they complement each other so well because Van Dyke with his with his pace with his command and you know the way he sort of kind of just exudes a confidence whereas Matip is just there to mop up the pieces if you like get the incredibly important early foot in reading the game so he's there to make the interception or quick header it's just, they, they, as a pair I think as a pair, I think they take some beating. I think Joe Gomez will probably in the next season or so perhaps sort of succeed. They have strengthened, haven't they, in that department? Blimey, they could hardly put a pair together last season and now they've got sort of Canate waiting on the bench as well. But I do think that Matip is is almost a little bit under... I think Liverpool fans know how good he is, but sometimes overlooked and underappreciated just how good he is. His biggest problem is clearly keeping fit, isn't it? Mm. Because that is, the, that is the biggest issue. Look at the stats and look at the appearances. He misses games. And I think it's sometimes having the right person to come and slot in. And I think that's the difference this season, that basically Liverpool have got options and strength in depth for when he misses those games. Yeah, with that strength in depth, Darren, I suppose... We look at the the moral of Costas Simicast, don't we? You know, stay patient, seize your chance when it comes. Because if you look at it, Ibrahima Kanata, who you know has been their only investment, thirty six million pounds this summer. You've got Joe Gomez, England player, waiting to get in. That's perfect for a manager, isn't it? It's absolutely perfect. And you can, if you look at the many fronts on which Liverpool will look to compete this season. He'll get his game time, absolutely. And even if you look at Robertson, when he came from Hull after they were relegated, people were underwhelmed. He needed a bit of time to get his feet, find his feet, but he did. And the transfer policy at Liverpool is very considered, very sensible, and they know that not only are they bringing in technically good players, but they're also bringing in good characters as well, people who are willing to understand what Liverpool are trying to do. You, listen, you, I, really, I should redirect this question to you because I know when you, in your book, The Nowhere Men, you spoke to the kind of people who sought out these characters as not just good footballers, but good men, people who think about the game, think about their approach to the game, think about what clubs are trying to do when they sign them, so that when they slot in, they're slotting in with a group of like-minded people rather than egotists who come in and upset the apple cart and Liverpool don't do that even if you look at somebody like Shakiri, you know he's gone in there he's not really played that much football but whenever he's called upon he gives a hundred percent because that's the kind of player that Liverpool sign they also sign young players and make the most of them on that point John Harvey Elliott already mentioned by Darren but you know, he's coming on the, the other route, if you like. They signed him from Fulham at 16, wanting to play the system. They only offered £750,000 in compensation, ended up having to pay a, a near record £4 million for him, which still looks an amazing bargain. When you look at him, you know, the quality that he has, the space that he can find, the runs that he makes, the awareness that he's got on the ball, you know, that's pretty rare stuff. You know, you're around the England camp a lot. Here's a lad who's played up to the under-17s level. Is he the sort of player, you know, looking forward, that Gareth Southgate will be looking at really hard? Yeah, so it's funny you should mention that, actually, because in the wake of the Euros final and England reaching the, reaching the final and the kind of the fallout, I just did a piece having spoken to a youth scout of mine who basically spotted some very good young players, basically, and really has a, has an eye. Who you might think might, and it's a really difficult call, actually, but who might break into the England setup between the end of the Euros and the next World Cup? So you've only got 18 months to do it. Now, I think the obvious one is Curtis Jones. So I think Curtis Jones, really interesting player, very, very good on the ball. He was excellent at the start of last season. And there's no doubt about it. I think as, if he gets games, and I think he will, then I think he's got a real opportunity. But the one that 
literally everybody mentioned, just quite apart from the scout, was Harvey Elliott and saying that if he can get regular game time, and the belief was that this would be a season where he would get that, having proved it out on loan already, then he would definitely be in the mix. And I just thought it was really interesting because I've, I've always thought that Harvey Elliott was a little bit further forward. But you watch the game on Saturday and he was part of the midfield three, wasn't he? Supporting. Mm. Now, he got forward a lot. He was very much of the forward player. But I do think that Harvey Elliott, I mean, blimey, it's funny, isn't it? Because we, I remember in the back end of 2019, when COVID was still miles away, we, we were talking to Gareth Southgate after the clinch qualification after one of the games. And so this was sort of six or, six or seven months before the Euros and saying, oh, who do you think, you know, is there anyone that could break in? And he said Phil Foden. Now, Phil Foden at that stage, I don't think it started a Premier League game. Seemed like a little bit of fantasy. And yet Phil Foden ends up, the, the tournament gets delayed for, by a year and Phil Foden starts the first game and he's arguably one of the most exciting young players, in, in English players in, in sort of, in, in Europe and, and indeed the Euro squad. So I just, what I'm trying to say is that it takes such a little time for an exciting talent to really burst through. And I think if there's one manager that basically gives that player the sort of the chance in the head, then it's Gareth Southgate. So I do think Harvey Elliott has got this opportunity and has certainly got the talent. The one aspect that he is clearly a boy that doesn't lack confidence, right? And basically, I think everyone sort of says, look, if he can get the two together, the personality right, and then also align with the talent, he can go absolutely all the way and and be anything that he wants to be. And I'm sure that I think he, he it feels like he's at the right club under the right manager to harness that and make sure that his characteristics are right and sort of basically keeps himself in check and he does the right thing, behaves well on and off the pitch. Yeah, I suppose you know, what we're looking at is in the next sort of week or so, well, definitely in the next week or so, there will be one transfer which comes at us from under the radar, Darren. James Tarkovsky, he was one of the, the few positive factors about a performance by Burnley at Anfield which suggested that they are stagnating. How about another principal contributor to the weekend, Eve Basuma from Brighton? I can see a player of his qualities being attractive to Manchester United, Arsenal, probably any Premier League club you care to name. Do you think he might go from Brighton? Yeah, I do. He's a wonderful player, as you say. Good engine, good eye for a pass, good in the tackle. I think he's a, a player that all of the big clubs have had a look at. And I could absolutely see him being bought by... United, who I understand are looking at another midfielder. Liverpool, obviously, would want to have more depth after the departure of Vinaldum. Spurs also like him as well, although they do have one or two other irons in the fire. And all of those clubs he would go to and grace. I think as far as Brighton are concerned, they accept that in football's ecosystem, However much they might suggest they want to hold on to their players, players will want to make that step up. He will want to make that step up. But the wonderful thing about him as a footballer is that even though there has been speculation swirling around since the start of the window, it's not really affected his game. He's been professional, he's been committed. And I think that if the window were to close and he were not to get his move, he would continue to give good performances. But I fully expect him to leave before the window closes. Yeah. As a stay with Brighton, John, if we're going to have an award for best comeback of the, the season, OK, it's only two games. Uh, what about Shane Duffy? You know, he had that terrible loan at Celtic and he, he was outstanding, I thought, against Watford. Yeah, I, I, honestly... I'd almost forgotten he was there because when he would go to Celtic, you think, oh, well, that's the end of the Brighton chapter. You know, he's going to do something else, do something new. And I have to say, when I looked at the sort of the starting lineup on the opening day, I was thinking, Shane Duffy, what? I thought he left. <laughs> and it was just one of those. And, 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 and frankly, yeah, again, he's, they are, they are unbelievably black. I mean, you know, the recruitment is really, really clever and cute there, isn't it? 
So they brought back Shane Duffy with his experience and it complements Lewis Dunk, who time and again, I think, has been so unlucky not to have had an England call. And then Adam Webster as well. I mean, Adam Webster, I thought, was absolutely outstanding in that game. His distribution, you know, I think the pundits really sort of called it. I mean, Chris Powell is sort of part of the England setup, isn't he? Drew on that. And so, I mean, I just thought he was absolutely fantastic. And the point is about that is that I think when you've got that experienced head and that knows exactly what, what it takes, basically. It exudes confidence amongst the other defenders. And I just think it, it sort of enables them to play and feel very, very confident in in what they do. And I really like the look of Brighton. I think it just typifies that clever man management from Graham Potter in what he does. And I think he's proven to be an outstanding manager because, honestly, if you're Shane Duffy, you're thinking if it's been sort of farmed out on loan, you think, oh, this is the beginning of the end. And, you know, to hear Graham Potter talk about Shane Duffy, it was like as if he was just, it was never an issue, never a concern. He wanted to go out and see what he could do. And I just think it's really clever, both from the club and, and, and from, from Graham Potter to manage Duffy in that way. Very, very clever management, I think, for me. Mm. What about biggest bargain so far, Darren? I'd, I'd probably say Damari Gray, only £1.7 million. And he looks perfect for Calvert-Lewin in you know, a Benitez quite regimented system, doesn't he? Both those players, actually, because I think if you think about Gray, you think about the £1.5 billion that they spent on Andros Townsend as well. And then you think about the way that they give Everton a clear identity, balls in from the box, or from the wide areas rather, for Calvert-Lewin in the box to feast on. You can see absolutely where that money has gone and how it will improve Everton. I was very surprised Townsend didn't start the match at the weekend. I gather Townsend was too. Um, <laughs> and I think as far as Everton is concerned, it possibly halted what could have been a bit of momentum that they could have started to build. But I, I think in terms of bargain of the season, when so much money has been thrown around elsewhere, Rafa, whose job it is, to keep pace with the big six and could easily have gone in there and said, I want to make a statement signing. I want to do what all the other managers have been in charge of this football club have done, crack open the checkbook and slap it on the table. But what he's done is he's clearly thought about the mistakes that they've made, the lack of identity that they've had. And he's realised that with a very simple tweak here and there, a couple of players in the bargain basement knocking around the unappreciated elsewhere, he can change a few things. Yeah, talking of changing a few things, you know, Darren alluded to it earlier, John, about United. You know, the midfield is still a problem, isn't it? And I think we, I think there's common consent on that. Also, Anthony Martial, he's not the answer for him up front, is he? Well, I, I don't know, you know, I, sometimes I think players must get frustrated with journalists and pundits saying, oh, you need to run around a bit more, but <laughs> at least look vaguely interested. I mean, that I would think that that's the biggest single single factor in Martial. No one doubts his ability because he's he's clearly got technique and his, his control and his, his ability to dribble with the ball is fantastic. But sometimes he just looks so lackadaisical and kind of... Everyone's still trying to solve a puzzle, you know. It's like, you know, the United fans have that song, don't they, about how everyone's got it wrong, the English press have got it wrong. I think it's come from, come from a Daily Mirror back page, by the way. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't a colleague's fault. He was just reporting what a, what a transfer investigation said, that it was overpriced. Well, I mean, you know, yes, he does score goals, but you know, even that appears to be drying up at the moment. And he just, I don't know, he's just, it feels like he's not, he doesn't feel part of it. And if you're naming your Man United team, nine times out of ten, you just don't put him in it. You think of him as a substitute. Maybe that's affected his focus and his drive and his purpose. But I just think that he probably needs something different. I think United, they, they've, they've got various striking options, haven't they? Cavani's obviously still there as well. And you just think, well, who's your first choice, number nine? And I think for a team like United, I think you have to have a focal point. And I think that's an issue for, for me in terms of United and where they're going. 
and kind of whether they're strong enough to maintain it for the rest of the season. I think to have to sustain a really strong title challenge, United have to get a centre forward in the building. Yeah, talking of the building, you know, theatre of the dreams and everything else that we talk about with Old Trafford, John. You know that that's a club. United is a club that creates legends. Dennis Law announced last week that he'd been diagnosed with dementia. Followed quickly by Terry McDermott in a piece written, you know, by his friend John Richardson. You've got a generation unraveling here. Why isn't there more urgency from football to address the issue? Yeah, do you know what that piece with with Terry McDermott was so moving in the Sunday Mirror, and I thought it said it all in the inside piece John Richardson had written with McDermott and. There was the headline saying that basically I was on stage and he asked for an anecdote or a story, and then I suddenly I suddenly couldn't remember what what he'd asked me, what what we were what we were talking about, and my mind went blank, and I just thought that was that was heartbreaking because Terry McDermott is, you know, was the vintage after the generation that we've we've become used to. So he's, you know, I'm not saying that he's sort of kind of immediately yesterday. But basically, he's another generation, if you like, and I think that that would that's a worry. I think with within football, and then listening to the analysis yesterday on the radio, they had a head injury specialist on, and basically saying, you know, this misnomer that is is the heavy waterlogged balls, and that's the issue, and it's gone away now for the modern game. It's gone away for the modern player, and they said that's just wrong. You know, the balls might be technically lighter but they travel at a greater pace. Therefore, it's doing just as much damage with, with, the, head, with the heading, if you like. And honestly, that's, the failure to address it is, is so, so frustrating, I think. And yet, it's, it feels like an emergency in football that has gone under the radar and is not being addressed and is such a massive, massive issue, massive concern, I think, for football. Why hasn't it been addressed? Because I think that despite all these heroes of 66 being struck down by this terrible illness within, within football, I don't think it's been brought to the public consciousness of, of this new generation. And basically people can see and remember quite easily. And I think that's a tragedy in itself. Some of the work that sort of some of the campaigners do is, is fantastic. Dawn Astor being obviously the case in point. But I do think that you know, football has been so guilty of not taking this terrible tragedy seriously enough and I think that we've, we've got to find a solution to this and hopefully that there'll be funding within it but the the, the, the lack of urgency within some of the organisations within football is distressing and it's so so worrying I think for footballers of a certain generation too. Yeah well I suppose you know Darren John mentioned Dawn Astle there she's been campaigning tirelessly since the death of her father Jeff in 2002, it's 19 years. Do you think football realises the magnitude of its duty of care to players at all levels of the game? I'm not sure it does. I think football, like so many of the social issues that we've talked about, it knows all about sending out messages and saying the right things. And <laughs> football's very good at putting on a sombre face and wringing its hands but doesn't really do the kind of thing that it needs to. And it, I mean, I know we, we, I think the study from a couple of years ago found that pro footballers are three and a half times more likely to die from dementia than people of the same age range in the general population. And Dawn's been working tirelessly to highlight exactly that and the link between the pro game. But what it generally gives rise to is phone-ins and debates around can we really ban heading from football? Can we really do this? Can we... It's almost as if people say, well, we're sad, but we go on. Do you know what I mean? I think that there isn't really the understanding of the damage being done in plain sight to otherwise capable men and... Again, I think we're going through the same process with 
uh, we will go through the same process with Dennis Law, with Terry McDermott, two much-loved legends of the game. Terry's story in particular really did strike me when he talked about being out of do with Kevin Keegan and Kevin telling one of those many stories that ex-pros tell when they do the rounds, the tours, and handing over to Terry to finish the story. And Terry says, I, I couldn't remember. I, I couldn't remember. You know, look, I, I'm doing this podcast. I'm 50 years of age, you know, and I, I dread getting to an age where I stop being able to remember. And I read those words from Terry and, yeah, I, 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 my blood ran cold for him. And you know, Terry's one of Liverpool's greatest ever midfielders. I think he won four league titles and three European Cups and a UEFA Cup and a couple of league Cups. Do you know, I, I really despair that we will ever get to a point where we deal with this adequately. Because as I said before, Mike, John, you know, I think football is good at talking, but it's not very good at delivering. And while we still have people suffering with mental health, I saw Lee Collins's widow spoke yesterday very movingly about the mental health crisis that we have with young men in our sport who don't earn the riches in the Premier League that people believe they do and they're suffering and they're dying in hotel rooms alone and they're they're they're, they're drowning this they're drinking themselves to death and football can't do anything about that just like it can't do anything about this beyond have the kind of debate that goes nowhere and we end up back at square one yeah i want to end with uh, some facts uh, from the same sample that was quoted there by darren Footballers are five times more likely to die of Alzheimer's disease. They're four times more likely to die with motor neurone disease. As Darren said, they're three and a half times more likely to die with neurodegenerative disease. They're twice as likely to die from Parkinson's disease. Those facts are well known to the authorities, yet too little is being done too slowly and football can no longer avoid its responsibilities. Action needs to be taken now. I hope you agree. It only remains for me to thank John and Darren for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.